you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Good morning, friends. Today's Bible reading is taken from Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. The beginning of knowledge. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing. In righteousness, justice and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands, obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. This is the word of the Lord. That's Katie. Good morning, church. As Nick said, my name's Michael. I uh, have the pleasure and huge honour today of opening up God's Word uh, with you to the book of Proverbs. Uh, during the week, as Nick mentioned, I'm a university lecturer. Uh, lectures tend to go for two hours, but that's not the case today. Uh, <clears throat> I, most of my research and writing and teaching is on uh, ancient language, so Greek and Hebrew. In particular, I'm really interested in the background uh, the archaeology, uh, uh, inscriptions, papyri, ancient coins, things like that, that open up in some distinct way uh, the background of, of the scriptures and illuminate the world of the ancient uh, context to help us understand scriptures better. Uh, I'm super interested in the ancient world. However, it struck me today, uh, more than today, in, in fact, this week it struck me, that God is not locked in the ancient past nor is he locked into some special program or plan in the far-flung distant future. Uh, I'm a part of a prayer group at a kid's school, our kid's school, uh, and um, we meet for prayer in a, a down this corridor, little corridor, obscure corridor with flickering lights, kind of like one of those movie scenes that you sort of get scared at, but a little room off there, and we've been praying for uh, one of the teachers at the school. Her name is Debbie. Don't forget that name, Debbie. Uh, Debbie was diagnosed with, with a really aggressive brain cancer. And uh, it was, uh, the scans revealed it was something like eight centimetres uh, in, in her actual brain. Uh, five operations, countless uh, concoctions of chemotherapy. Uh, this cancer was unstoppable. A beautiful woman. Um, and... Uh, Debbie was recently, uh, prognosis given was three to eight weeks to live. Uh, the doctors focused on palliative care, <clears throat> trying to make her life just comfortable uh, in the time that she had left and pain-free. That was 11 weeks ago. And she'd outlived that prognosis by three weeks. And the oncologist was a little bit, um, well, very surprised by that and ordered an MRI to uh, see what was going on. The results of the scanner on the screen, the, um, 
The previous scan is this one. You see this large white mass? That's, that's the cancer. After they had stopped all medical care, chemo, operations, uh, she was scanned on Monday, this week. We, were, we prayed together on Tuesday and she came to the prayer meeting and she gave a testimony that she now, they, the scan, is this. There is literally, according to what the doctors say, not a, a trace of cancer in her brain. Even, even to the point that the scar tissue from the previous five operations is not there. That's like my spine is tingling. God is not locked into the past. God is not locked into some program for the future. Uh, he is alive and active now in our world. And my prayer for today is that we, including myself, of course, will be transformed by God's Spirit. Let's take a step back for a moment. Why do we devote time in our church service to preaching, to this idea of someone getting up and speaking for uh, some time about a, a biblical passage? Well, I'm not here to impress you. I'm not smart enough for that. I'm not here to entertain you. You've got Netflix for that. Uh, I'm not here to give you an informational data dump. You have encyclopedias for that. I'm not here to be your fashionista of style. I'm not, I don't have the style for that. There's several others here that do a much better job. I'm not here to offer you a personal therapy session. I don't have prescriptions for that. And I'm not here to give you some sort of motivational speech. You've got workout videos for that. I'm here to bring you God's word in its simplicity and profundity, wisdom and folly in the book of Proverbs. We're going to explore that in three stages. Number one, the source of wisdom. Number two, the folly or the foolishness of ignoring wisdom. And number three, the paradox of wisdom. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter one. Proverbs is a collection of wisdom sayings. They're traditionally associated with the figure of Solomon. You remember when Solomon uh, was uh, called in 1 Kings 3 and 4, he asked God for wisdom. Good idea. Solomon doesn't finish up very well, but he starts off well. So we have uh, Psalm one, uh, sorry, Proverbs 1, 1, Solomon, the Proverbs of Solomon. But it's not just the Proverbs of Solomon that we find in the book of uh, Proverbs. We have also contributions from anonymous wise men. We have Agur. We have King Lemuel's mum. Thanks, mum. The men of Hezekiah in Proverbs 25. Uh, but it's Solomon who's featured at the start of chapter one. So chapters one to nine is this big unit, a big literary unit, which focuses on a narrative style of, uh, of, of wisdom. And then you get to the more proverbial wisdom, the little nuggets from chapters 10 all the way to 31. 
and scholars and readers have struggled for generations to work out how to categorize these things, and there's different ways of doing that. I won't go through that with you here, but there, it looks like there's seven main sections of the book, and that should remind you uh, of the completeness of God's wisdom, seven main sections. Some modern readers, though, have this love-hate relationship with Proverbs. We love the sparkle and the punch of the one-liners, uh, the individual Proverbs, but we're sometimes confused by the tedious nature, uh, these perplexing riddles, and some of them are really mind-bending. Uh, one of the very earliest forms of literature, in fact, there's two, two of our earliest cuneiform texts, this is this writing written in wedges. One is a recipe for beer, goes back a bit, and the other one um, is uh, a collection of, or things like this, proverbs. Uh, and they go back five and a half thousand years. This one here on the screen is about 4,000 years old. And the scribe who inscribed this literally left his fingerprints or her fingerprints on the tablet. You can see those, uh, those lines there. There's the fingerprints. Anyway, this proverb is one of thousands in the ancient world, non-biblical proverbs that try and help you make sense of life. How do you navigate the realities of life? The Sumerian proverb here uh, says, to speak is, is what humankind has most on its heart. And it's this non-biblical proverb. It's this idea that reflects a fundamental desire of human beings to speak, to communicate, to dialogue, to pass on wisdom and knowledge. When you open up Proverbs and you've been reading other parts of the scripture, it feels like a very different kind of book. It feels different. It doesn't sound like the law. The law sounds more like thou shalt do this and thou shalt not, not do that. It doesn't sound like the prophets, which uh, say something like, you know, thus saith the Lord, X, Y, and Z. Wisdom literature are human words. Proverbs 1.8, hear my son, your father's instruction, appropriate for this day, and forsake not your mother's teaching. The emphasis is on the wise counsel of God Pass from one generation to the next on how to navigate practically your life today. Our cultural assumption is newer is better. Think of how we are lured into buying new tech. How many of the 38 iPhones over the last 15 years have you owned or had or passed on? Storage capacity, resolution, processors. Chips, optical zoom, wide-angle 4K, cinematic vision. I don't know, the list goes on. Um, we lap it up. We like the new. We think that new is better. The opposite is the case in the ancient world. In the ancient world, they were suspicious of new ideas, suspicious of new things, because they haven't been tested over time. Like when a new person comes into your friendship group. Who is this guy? He hasn't proved himself. We don't know him. Can we trust him? Well, Proverbs are trusted precisely because they have stood the test of time. They have stood the test of time and they resonate. They're practical, very practical. They're authoritative. They're trustworthy. And so the book of Proverbs is God's practical wisdom for us. It's an on-the-ground, hands-on, real-life guide to living a good life. That's what Proverbs is. Even the word that describes the entire genre of wisdom literature, the first time the word wisdom uh, is used, it's the Hebrew word chokmah, 
If you need to clear your throat, that will help you do that. But it's a practical word referring to a skill or an ability. And the first time we see that is in um, uh, Proverbs 1-2, in, in the book of Proverbs, to know chokmah and instruction, to understand the words of insight. So the very first time that that word is used in the entire Bible, however, is re- referring to not some you know, bits of information knowledge in one's head, but in, in order for the, the interior designers of the tabernacle to decorate it, the craftsmen. And that comes from uh, Exodus 31, filled him with the Spirit of God with ability. Literally, the word ability is exactly the same word. It's translated differently in your English Bibles, but in Hebrew, chokmah, it's the same word. They've given them wisdom and intelligence with knowledge and all craftsmans, craft, craftsmanship. In Proverbs, chokmah is an ability to know, to have the wisdom, to know what to do in life, in a situation. What should I do right now in life? How do I navigate these circumstances in life? The thing I love about Proverbs is that it goes from what is this great theological theme to very practical. So you might say, God is the creator of the earth. I mean, hooray, magnificent, but how do I put food on my table? Well, Proverbs 24, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. Uh, God is the Lord of peace. Marvellous, but how do I live in peace with my neighbours? Well, here's a good start, Proverbs 27. Whoever blesses his neighbour with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as a cursing. God is a a source of wisdom and life. Wonderful. How do I flee folly and death? Well, Proverbs 4, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. God is eternal, unchanging. Fantastic. But how do I deal with the uncertainty in my own life? Proverbs 16, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. So Proverbs is God's gift of practical wisdom. Like on the ground, this is what you've got to do. This is the manual for life. However, from the very start, humans have rejected God's wisdom. Rejected what is good and bad on God's terms, preferring to define good for themselves. Do you remember at the very, the very first page of the Bible, very first chapter of the Bible, God announces something when he looks upon creation. So in aspects of creation, God saw the light was good. Verse 10, good. Verse 12, good. Verse 18, good. 21, good. 25, good. 20, uh, verse 31, me'od tov, very good. The climactic point of creation. God is the one who determines the good and the bad. That's wisdom. However, when Eve was looking at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what does she do? We're told that she announces what she sees and she defines good in her own terms. When the woman saw that the tree was good, the seeing and the good, for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. When we try to define wisdom on our terms rather than God's, that way leads to folly and ruin. It's like when I tried to, in absolute folly, tried to put together the 
ultimate challenge, the IKEA PAX wardrobe, <laughs> without using the instructions. Without using the instructions. It's one of the largest and most complex items in the IKEA range of 9,500 items, in case you need to know that. I later found out that there was an empirical study done using heart rate monitors, blood pressure checks and whatever, on how much stress was put on the human person trying to figure out how to you know, put one of those things, complicated things together, if you've ever done that. And this item was the most stressful, the PAX, um, the PAX wardrobe. What's so hard, I thought? Just a couple of drawers, shelves, holes, Allen key thingies, well, I'll be fine. I was wrong. I was so wrong. So wrong. There's a labyrinth of hinges and slots and slats and rails and whatever that had to be aligned within, you know, a millimetre to like four decimal places. Otherwise, the whole thing just would, you know, grind to a halt. And those wretched Allen keys, man, my fingers are still burning from the trying to grip in those small little places. Hundreds of frustrating moments. Overall, a debilitating mentally just crippling experience of torment. Why not, I thought, in the midst of it, turn back to actually read the instructions? Well, I was in too deep to turn back. <laughs> There's no point. Those d diagrams and cryptic symbols of arrows and that funny little person doing whatever they do, who can read them? Why bother? The moral of the story is that we need to use the practical advice, the wisdom the instructions, the guidance that are given to us. And if we don't, it's going to end up just like I felt putting together this ridiculous multi-thousand part wardrobe. Now, when we think about wisdom literature, God's practical advice to us, there are three books in the Old Testament that are classified as Israel's wisdom literature. You have Proverbs, which is what we're looking at now, Ecclesiastes, and we have Job. Now, if our, my helpers, three helpers, can, uh, can get uh, ready. These guys are launching their acting careers today with uh, helping me with this. But each book, yeah, uh, each book, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, uh, offers a unique perspective into wisdom. What is wisdom? How do we draw on wisdom, God's wisdom, God's practical advice for navigating real-world issues? Now, to have a grasp of wisdom, you need to listen carefully to the voice of each of these books, because each of them have a different and sometimes healthy tension, as we'll come to see with the dialogue that these guys will bring to us, using only the words of Scripture. Um, so we need, to, we need to think about that. So first, Proverbs presents a straightforward view of the world. If you're faithful... You will be blessed. If you're foolish, you will not be blessed. A cause and effect relationship. Proverbs 1 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Ecclesiastes, however, introduces an element of uncertainty, questioning the direct correlation of righteousness and rewards and foolishness and consequences. Ecclesiastes embraces that life is filled with enigmas and even wise words can't explain all of life's complexities. Meaningless. Meaningless. 
utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I wonder what Proverbs would say to that. Proverbs 10, 16. The wages of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. The third member of this conversation is Job, who is introduced as blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That's in Job 1.1. But his life is a misery, and we never discover why. Sometimes the righteous suffer without apparent cause. (laughs) I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. Proverbs 13, 9. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Uh, How often is that lamp of the wicked put out that their calamity comes upon them? Job is wrestling with the message of Proverbs, which is presented as a general truth in absolute form. Proverbs is about principles, not promises. Principles, not promises. Proverbs tells us what typically or normally happens in life when you follow good advice. It doesn't cover the exceptions. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Great. Thank you, guys. (laughs) Now, there are some similarities between those three books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and, and Job. And some of these similarities, I was thinking about this, are perhaps somewhat similar to sibling birth order. Proverbs, the firstborn, the rule keeper, the straight-laced responsible one, the one who strives for perfection, who's very much a this, then, that. Ecclesiastes, the secondborn in this analogy, more flexible, adaptable to the challenges, the the status quo, asks a lot more questions. And then you have the thirdborn, Job, in this analogy, and endures untold misery and suffering never really finding out why. It's like uh, that uh, meme that you may have seen. The first child eats dirt, parent calls the doctor. Second child eats dirt, the parents scoop it out. A third child eats dirt and dad wonders whether they really need to have lunch. (laughs) This is a visualisation of the interconnectedness of the Bible by Chris Harrison. American uh, data visual, uh, data uh, visualizer, data visualizationer, I don't know, an artist slash data statistician, I guess, um, uh, in regard to the way in which the, uh, the scriptures are interconnected. So the, the bar graph that runs along the bottom represents all the chapters of the Bible. Each of those are one chapter of the Bible. And they're arranged in um, alternating sequence between white and gray. So Genesis is the first one, then it goes lighter to Exodus and so on. Each of the 63,779 connections, intertextual literary connections in the Bible are connected by 
an arc that uh, somehow develop a theme or connected in some recurring way, a motif or something like that. So if we zoom into Proverbs, you can see that there are plenty of textual cross-references within the book of Proverbs itself and within Proverbs, sorry, from Proverbs to other parts of the scriptures. So in the book of Proverbs, there's 915 verses. Okay, there's your factoid you can take away to the pub quiz, pub quiz tonight. 915 verses. Of those 915 verses in Proverbs, 223 verse, verses are duplicated in some way. Sometimes identically, some other times with slight variation. So there's 153 that appear as doublets, there's 45 that appear as triplets, and there's 20 that uh, appear as quadruplicates. So four times the same proverb. So if you're reading Proverbs it's during the series and you, you see that there's repetition, it's, you haven't gone mad, You've just it's what Proverbs does, it, it repeats stuff. The repetition is not some editorial oversight or an error, uh, because someone's been sloppy with their proofreading. It's a conscious technique to emphasise the importance of the repetition, the meditating on these proverbs, the continual coming back to them again and again, trying to um, draw out the wisdom that God has for uh, his people. But also it develops or explores a particular theme that's associated in the proverbs. So for example, uh, in the book of Proverbs, uh, it's framed around this idea of instruction giving, given to the next generation. Uh, and that's the central theme in Deuteronomy chapter 6. These commandments that I give you on your heart, when you walk, on the way, when you lie down, tie them up, write them, be connected to them, be committed to them. Proverbs 3.1 picks up some significant themes from there. Uh, picks up on commandments and hearts and the proactivity of personal engagement. Next slide, please. Thanks. Uh, but guard my commands in your heart. Your heart. And then in re repetitious style, Proverbs 3.21 picks up on the regularity and the frequency. My son, do not let your wisdom and understanding uh, out of your sight. Keep sound judgment and discretion. Then you will walk on your way. So the walking, the way, the lying down, uh, this idea of regularity and frequency is picked up. And then we have Proverbs 6, which combines the commands and their frequency with the closeness of the instruction. Tie them, bind them, internalize them. And then finally in Proverbs 7, 1, it links the commands in the heart, but also includes a reference to uh, keeping wisdom teaching as the apple of your eye apple of your eye. Uh, now, English translations don't quite capture the fullness of that Hebrew idiom, apple of your eye. The phrase apple of your eye isn't, um, isn't actually literally what the Bible says. There's no word for apple in Hebrew that appears in this verse. What we have is ishon. Ish is the Hebrew word for man, and on is a diminutive, just like we've got John and we've got Johnny. Who's older? Well, John. Johnny is the diminutive, the smaller version. Ishon is the small man, the little man. So it literally means keep the, the Torahs, keep my teaching as the little man of your eye. What on earth does that mean? Well, turn to the person next to you and get close enough. I mean, if you don't know, I'm, you don't have to do this. 
or if they smell or something. How close do you have to be to someone so you can see a little reflection of yourself in their eye? Can, you, can anyone see a reflection of themselves in their person sitting next to them in their eye? Don't get too close there, Steve. Thank you. <clears throat> well, it, you can't see it. I can't see a reflection of myself in your eye because I'm too far away from you. However, if I leapt off the stage and we were face to face, nice and close, I could see a little man in your eye. That's me. A reflection of me in your eye. Just like you can see here, the photographer in the a little man in the eye. You can't be six or seven feet away. You've got to be close. A foot. So this phrase in Proverbs, Ishon, to be the little man, uh, it talks about intimacy, it talks about familiarity, it talks about closeness with God's wisdom. It's a beautiful Hebrew idiom for an expression to connote closeness and intimacy. Well, how are we going to do that this week? I, I challenge you, find a proverb, a single proverb, one proverb. Read it, memorise it, write it. Share your insights with someone else about it. It doesn't have to be your formal kind of evangelistic bonanza. It can just be talking to your husband or wife or your mum or dad or your kids or whatever. Talk to someone about it. So summary point number one, the source of wisdom is God. I don't make up the wisdom. If I do, I end up looking like Adam and Eve who try to define what is good and what is evil. That's God's job. Point number two, the folly of ignoring wisdom. Well, this leads to disaster. Constantly in the book of Proverbs, it highlights how this disaster unfolds. Uh, so the fool in Proverbs is one who despises wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1.7. Mocks wisdom, Proverbs 14.9. The fool is hasty and careless in their speech. Really interestingly, uh, one of my favourite uh, Proverbs is Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Uh, it's very... Um, confronting when you read it. It says, first of all, um, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to answer or not answer? Well, the point of the proverb is that any time that you interact with a fool, whether you answer or not, it's going to end badly for you. And we know we sometimes like that, and other, other people that we interact with, no matter what you say, it's going to end badly. When that guy or girl cuts you off and they're waving their fist at the traffic lights because they're so angry with you, no matter what you do, if you reciprocate in anger or you give a really, you know, whatever response, they are still going to be angry. It's not going to end well. The fool delights in their own foolishness. Proverbs 15, uh, lack self-control, quick to anger, is gullible, easily deceived, Proverbs 14, the list goes on, fools find no pleasure in understanding, a delight in airing their own opinions, and is characterised by arrogance, Proverbs 12, the way of the fools seem right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Uh, remember where wisdom starts, it's the fear of the Lord, a humble or inspiring acknowledgement of your place in the world. That is humility. Humility. God's wisdom expressed in Proverbs is focused on this principle of humility. So point number two, source of wisdom, that's the Lord. Don't try to make up yourself because you'll end up like I did with the Ikea thing. It's not good. 
Number two, if we ignore wisdom, then it's going to lead to uh, a disaster. The third point is the paradox of wisdom. The paradox of wisdom is that the fear of the Lord and humility is the first principle of knowledge, which is counterintuitive in the first place. Uh, If you want true wisdom, what you have to do is actually come and sit at the foot of the cross of Jesus, because there you see the ultimate act of wisdom and humility. There is where God himself lays down every honour, every privilege, every worldly claim to glory. In 1 Corinthians, Paul discusses the message of the cross, uh, which is considered to be foolishness by the world. Jews demand signs, Greeks, that's me because I'm Greek, desire wisdom. Wisdom's good, but on what terms? We proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In the ancient world, the idea of a crucified saviour was seen as absolutely absurd. A crucified saviour. You're supposed to put the enemy to death, not be put to death by the enemy. And crucifixion was a brutal, humiliating form of execution. There were no modesty loincloths like you see in artwork from the medieval period in crucified victims' uh, lives. <laughs> They're crucified naked. There's also no toilet breaks on the cross. It's not, a, it's not a pleasant thing to look at. It's not a pleasant thing to smell. It's a smell of death. The concept of a crucified Messiah challenged everything that the Romans stood for and Jews and Greeks and all in antiquity and even in the modern world. Uh, we lose that, I think, sometimes. And I've got nothing against you wearing a cross, whatever, as a piece of jewellery, but don't forget that that was an instrument of execution. It would be as acceptable in the ancient world to wear a cross around your neck as it would be today to wear a little electric chair around your neck. Oh, isn't that cute? No, it's, it's, it's absolutely counterintuitive to the ancient and modern world. This piece of graffiti was scratched into a stone in the guardroom on the Palatine Hill near the Circus Maximus. On the left-hand side, you can see um, the actual inscription. I'll show you a clear image in just a minute as we close. Uh, But it displays a caricature of early Christianity by the average Roman. It has an inscription, you can see in red, Alex Samenos, this is Alex. Sevete worships. Theon, God, Alexandros Sevete Theon. And here you have an individual with an arm raised in worship, that's Alexander, and you've got a other figure that is crucified with a donkey's head, mocking the idea that somehow uh, it's an admirable thing that your saviour and your God is crucified. What this Roman who scratched this into the plaster wall in the second century forgets or misses is that this is the very foundation of Christian hope. So we have the source of wisdom, the folly of ignoring wisdom, and the paradox of wisdom. Now, just to conclude, what I'd love to do with us is to give us a moment and some space to process what we've just experienced here. If you're comfortable, please close your eyes and, uh, and, and focus your thoughts on, uh, on, on God.
If you want to, and if it helps, open your hands as a sign that your minds and your hearts are receptive to to God's wisdom and God's uh, input. First of all, I'd like you to think of a specific area of your life where you need God's wisdom, an area that seems bleak, dark, confusing, out of control. And right in this moment, right now, in God's presence, ask God to meet you in that need. thing I've experienced this week is God is someone who answers prayer. Ask God. Secondly, folly of ignoring wisdom. Bring to God now those moments where you have ignored God's gift, God's good gift of wisdom in the past, preferring yourself to define what is good and evil on your terms rather than God's. Acknowledge them, be sorry for them, and turn in trust to God's wisdom. And finally, the paradox of wisdom. Consider where following God's wisdom might appear to all those around you and this world counterintuitive. Ask God to fortify true wisdom, the practical know-how of how to navigate these difficult decisions in your life. We thank you for the wisdom you offer us. A wisdom that surpasses our human understanding. Your wisdom is the source of guidance in our lives. And we seek it, earnestly seek it. Help us to echo and embody the paradox of your beautiful wisdom displayed in the cross of Christ, where what seemed like utter foolishness to the world became the ultimate expression of your divine wisdom. We invite the transformative power of your Holy Spirit into our lives. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, Or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.